Welcome to the Business in Vancouver interview. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of BIV, where we explore issues intersecting business and politics. My guest this time is a familiar voice and face in national and international affairs, a former cabinet minister who has moved, at least for a time, from politics into different realms of influence. James Moore was a Conservative MP for 15 years. He was Heritage Minister, then Industry Minister in the Stephen Harper government. He's now a Chancellor at University of Northern British Columbia, a Senior Business Advisor at the Denton's Law Firm, a Policy Advisor at the Edelman Public Relations Group, and on the board of the Canadian Cancer Society. We have a lot to discuss. Thanks a lot for joining us, James. Always a pleasure. Hey, listen, you you were a broadcaster at one point. You, you had a show called Behind the Headlines. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it, it was fun back in the day. You know when it's sort of the the, the heyday of, of talk AM talk radio in the nineteen nineties. It was it was a lot of fun though, and and uh, but yeah, but it's it, it's a great medium, especially now. I think in the new era of podcast uh, podcast and digital media, where you can actually have long conversations, full sentences, and have a really good. <laughs> conversation about things versus sort of the snip and snap of uh, typical digital media or certainly broadcast television media. So it's a great format. What's the shortest interview you've had to do? Shortest? (laughs) It's like like 40 seconds? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, can I I just get you, can I just get a quick soundbite on this? You get a lot of that in government. So, but but it's it's, it's full context that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and how many times have you said my remarks were taken out of context? (laughs) <laughs> quite a lot. I'm um, sorry, I've lost you there. I can't hear. Yeah, geez, I've lost you too. Yeah. Um, and how many times have you have you said your, your remarks were taken out of context? Oh, more than once, but way less than a million times. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I, I have trouble explaining without going into bromides um, what attracts me to journalism or, or, or what did for a very short time there. Uh, uh, induce me to try to seek public office. What, what is it about you? Do you think that that did these things, that pursued these things? Um, well, well, media. I, I think it was a curiosity. You know, I was sort of drawn into um, public debate and, and all, and I, I just was sort of fell in love with a bit of the romance of the idea of sort of the clash of ideas. When I was in mm-hmm. university, um, a, yeah, I remember a political science professor put it well. He said, you know. Um, government is trying to answer the question with a constant string of trial and error, trying to answer the question of how should we live together? That's the question of government. And media is an examination of that debate and an exposure of that debate and an ex- and a, you know, a- a exposition of the debates and cleavages in society and all that. And I just find it endlessly fascinating. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's an entertainment part, I think, to politics in some ways, particularly in the United States, where you have sort of entrenched media interests, whether it's MSNBC and, and CNN on the left and Fox News on the right, where it becomes sort of this cartoonist, cartoonist charade of, of, a, of a debate. But I think at core, you know, answering that question, how should we live together and having a, a conversation about it, whether it's in a parliament, in a campaign, online or through media, I, I think is an extraordinarily important part of a healthy society. Uh, and, and I think it's part of, of the, 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 the human need to have this ongoing conversation about how we live together. So to me, it's all kind of wrapped and associated in, in kind of the same uh, perpetual debate. And yet not everybody who is curious is also performative. True. Um, and not everybody who's curious or is, is actually sincerely curious. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people have, people have their biases and it's, and people like to be entrenched and re-entrenched and have their views reinforced. And that whole, 
that whole echo chamber meme of media where you just kind of keep reading opinions that are the same opinions, but re-articulated and packaged in a different way with a different voice in a slightly different style or a different volume um, is, is a it's completely self-defeating. I always think that people in public life, whether it's in elected politics or in media, you have an obligation to show respect to your opinion by challenging it from time to time. And mm-hmm. you should spend more time reading countervailing opinions rather than just reinforcing your own cute new arguments. And um, that's a, it's a very important and healthy part of, I think, uh, intellectual perspective. It, you know, I, I do tell my students uh, from time to time, and I can tell that they're not uh, avid Fox News viewers, uh, but I tell them to that they have to watch it. They have to watch it for intel, if nothing else. Well, quite right, and 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 also, you know, it, it's important to know what arguments are taking purchase. You know, the politics in a healthy society. Politics is a reflection of society. Um, you know, people can be, and it's easy to get animated about Donald Trump, or it's easy to get animated about. You know, Andrew Weaver and John Horgan governing this province, even though neither of them won the election. And it's easy to get <laughs> animated about things, but you have to you have to unpack it and take a step back. And it's like, well, why is it at a time when British Columbia's economy was growing? We had whatever it was, four or five straight balanced budgets and things were going reasonably well. Why is it that Christy Clark was not given another mandate? Well, let's talk about that. And you can be upset about Andrew Weaver and John Horgan, but contextualize this. Be upset at Donald Trump. But there's a reason why. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders together captured more than two-thirds of primary votes in the two parties in the 2015-16 primary cycles in the two governing parties of the United States. Well, what was that about? Let's talk about it. Don't get distracted by what's the the face of the movement or the ugliness of the movement or the energy of it, but let's have a conversation about how did we get here? And I think that's a far more important thing. So so how have you unpacked it? What do you think it was? With Donald Trump, well, I I think there's... um, systemic collapse of trust across institutions in the United States. And I think um, there was at the start of the 15-16 primary cycle, you had a bunch of Republicans on one side of the table, and you had Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders on the other side of the table, mainly Hillary Clinton, arguing back and forth. And I think a lot of Americans said, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone to come in and kick over the table. Mm. And, and, And I think Donald Trump, the one thing that he does have is he has authenticity in the sense that He is the same belligerent blowhard who was on Donahue in the 1980s, who was on The Apprentice, who was in the primaries, and who was in the White House. He's the same person over the past 30 years that Americans have gotten to know, and they know what he is. And they also know that he's got money, so he can't be bought, or at least the perception is. Um, And also, I think there's a fallacy, and I have to say this, particularly amongst a lot of sort of center-right, you know, voters, I have to say, but there's a there's a subconscious um, equation that happens, which is money equals success, success equals intelligence, intelligence must mean good at government. Mm-hmm. And there's a fallacy, there's a fallacy between every one of those links. But I think there are a lot of people who just see a guy who's really sort of blowhardy and self-assured and, and, and cocky, and they equate that money and that attitude with success and confidence and therefore competence. But the energy, is, I think, is deeper than that. And it, this was not just sort of a rise of a personality. It was a personality at the face of it. But, you know, how is it that a Bernie Sanders voter crossed over and voted for Donald Trump, which millions of Americans did? Yeah. And I think it's, be- and I think it's because a lot of Americans are, are, have been very, very frustrated and, and, and have seen, and we know this now because it's been quantified with, with exit polls and research, um, that in, 
area after area of American society that there's been a collapse in trust. You know, the National Football League lying to their fans about the concussions and the, the impact of that. Um, the Major League Baseball lying about steroid scandal. Lance Armstrong lying about his doping scandal. But it's like institutions like that. Or, you know, think about Colin Powell and WMD Iraq. Mm-hmm. Think about the, the raid in Benghazi. Think about, and I often point this out, in 2015, when Donald Trump ran for president, the, the movie that came in second place for the Academy Award was the movie The Big Short, which was what? It was about the collapse of trust that people yeah. have in institutions that are supposed to protect us. And the movie that won the Academy Award of Spotlight, which was what? Mm-hmm. Another institution, the Catholic Church, failing in its obligations to protect children from the systemic sexual and physical abuse um, by the church. So in every corner of American society, there's this collapse of trust, and the old established political parties failed to address it. And I think a lot of Americans just really wanted to send, you know, they wanted to throw a flashbang in the middle of the room and just wake everybody up and send a, send a message. And some people did it through Bernie Sanders. Some people did it through Donald Trump. And, of course, by 110,000 votes in four Midwest states on an inside straight, Donald Trump won in the Electoral College, and here we are. Yeah. Given that it, it should have been apparent to people that Americans were looking for a kind of an, an institutional shift, why, why couldn't they find another person than Donald Trump? Um, well, I, I, well, politics is a wholly unattractive business for a lot of people, number one. But number two is I, I think there was you know, frankly, for lack of a better phrase, a splitting of the vote within the Republican Party, right? You had 17 candidates. And so, I mean, Donald Trump started at two points and he worked his way up. On the Democratic side, I mean, I, I have a bit more of a uh, sort of a dubious conspiracy about this, but, but, I, but I, I don't actually think it's at all off the mark, which is, think back to 2008, where the Democratic primary for the presidency between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton was a deep and bloody fistfight. And it went deep into the primary process where Hillary Clinton would win two out of three primaries, then Barack Obama won two out of three, and it was on and it was a tug of war. And then at the end of the campaign, it was I think it was in June, late June, when when Senator then Senator Obama won the nomination. And he said, I'm running for president against John McCain. This is pre Sarah Palin. I'm running for president now. My name is Barack Hussein Obama. We're in the middle of the Iraq war. I'm running against a war hero in John McCain. And if I'm going to have any chance of winning this as the first African-American nominee for president, uh, we have to be all in as Democrats. We all have to be in. So, Hillary, I need your support. Bill, the whole – we all have to come back together. We need to make this happen. And they did. But I think within that, there's clearly a bargain, which mm-hmm. was you know, Hillary Clinton then became Secretary of State. She then left as Secretary of State, made a lot of money in the private sector as a cushion to reenter public life at some point down the road. And she did. And you can very much tell that between 2008 and 2016, the Democrat Party was effectively a duopoly of Obama and Clinton. And so therefore, the voices of anxiety and frustration from the 2008 recession forward, the people who were in the Democratic Party who were frustrated with the Iraq war and didn't think that there was a strong enough voice who didn't necessarily believe in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and globalization, um, you know, th- those voters and young people who, who you know, wanted to see more aggressive stance perhaps on climate change or standing up to banks or, or legalizing pot or whatever the you know, coalition of issues are, um, there, there was no ability for them to get engaged in the Democratic Party and to have access to it because there was a, it, like, it was sort of like Jean Chrétien to Paul Martin, sort of this transition of power. 
And as a consequence, I think within the Democrat Party, there was this lack of ability of outsiders to come in, this lack of ability for there to be a thorough discussion of public policy. And as a consequence, people got frustrated and they said, well, I'm voting for Bernie Sanders, who won almost half of the, I think more than a half, actually, in this 26 or so, um, states in the primaries. Um, so so you, when political parties are not seen as reservoirs of ideas and a way for people to express themselves in a democracy, you, then yeah, you risk a Donald Trump and you risk a Bernie Sanders, and frankly, you can risk even worse. Yeah. Can you, can you then uh, unpack what it was about the 2015 election that cost the Conservatives? Oh yeah. Well, there's there's a lot to be said about that, but, but I, I actually think it's it's. Um, is it somewhat the I same though? Is it the same that just the you know the no. w- waiting long and and uh, staying you know overstaying in a particular vein? I think I, I, it's not a clear parallel, but I but I think Justin Trudeau, if I think if honest observers are fair, to go from 34 seats and the third party in Parliament to winning a majority in a 338 seat house. Um, says there's a lot more at stake there. That he obviously ran a good campaign. He drafted good candidates. They had a strong message, and he personally performed well, I think. Um, but in the popular vote, you know, the Liberals beat the Conservatives 39-32. You know, the Seattle Seahawks lose to the uh, New York <laughs> Giants 39-32. You don't say they got killed. You say that they lost, but you didn't get killed. Um, but that said, you know, uh, I boiled down to its most basic elements. I think the 2015 election campaign was it was a time for change election. Stephen Harper ran as an, in a national leadership campaign for the Canadian Alliance in 2002. He ran in a national leadership campaign for the Conservative Party and the merger in 2004. He ran in the national camp, general election campaign in 04, in 06, in 08, and 11, and 15. That's a lot of Stephen Harper. That's a lot of a person on, on, on national campaigns asking for a mandate. And, and so, so there was a question of, is it a time for change? And I think people, if you look at the polls, people very clearly thought that the conservative government broadly with issues and, and mistakes and, and frustrations for sure, but broadly speaking, the public was happy with where the country was, but it was time for change. And in the 2015 campaign, the NDP and the Liberal Party and the media were all saying that this is a campaign about change. And you'll remember right up until the very last weekend, the NDP were going around the country with those orange stop signs, and they said two things. They said, number one, the most important thing, the number one most important thing in this election is you got to stop Stephen Harper. And number two, the way you do that is you vote for the NDP, the official opposition. And the voters said, you're exactly half right. <laughs> And, and, they, and, they, and they broke to the Liberals, and they said, there are two governing parties in this country, the Liberals and the Conservatives, and you're right, it's time for change. And Justin Trudeau has proven himself in this 100-day campaign that he can withstand the heat. You were, you were out of it, uh, out of politics by then, although, of course, you campaigned very vigorously for the Conservatives here in British Columbia, as, you know, it had a lot of, lot of campaign stops. Uh, were you expecting, as the campaign started, that we were going to have uh, Prime Minister Tom Mulcair? No, but I thought it was possible. I mean, halfway through the red, I mean, it was effectively, you know, 32, 32, 32. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was pretty wide open. And also, it, it's pretty hard to gauge how it was ultimately going to end up because even those polls, if it, it was effectively a three-way split, those polls are tough to gauge because um, half the campaign was happening through the summer months and into September. And, you know, people are on vacation. People are checked out. People, people engage seriously 
and make their final decisions in campaigns in, in the final two or three weeks. And that's when things crystallize. Yeah. Uh, my view, I, I thought at the outset that Stephen Harper was likely to get reelected. I thought it was it would be a real fight and we'd have to do really well strategically within the campaign in order to pop up and get a majority again. But but I was confident that we would win because because, frankly, I like a lot of people, I underestimated Justin Trudeau, um, the quality of his campaign. And I think the appetite for change, and, and I also have to say in retrospect, um, you know, I wasn't a candidate, so I didn't hear it on the doorstep. But but I think that the tactical choices in the campaign, you know, the cultural barbaric practices and all that yeah. sort of stuff, I, I think that struck people and sort of reinforced the worst elements, that the worst, the worst interpretation that people have of conservatism uh, being a, a vehicle for division rather than unity. And I, and I think strategically that was a terrible error. Why, why do you think that was happening? Was it was it to, the, at the sign of decline in poll numbers? There was a sense that there had to be these near desperation acts in order to firm up the support. I mean, like, why did the conservative campaign do those things? Yeah. Um, well, no. I, well, the polling wasn't inaccurate, and actually, this is a it's an interesting point. I think for real students of politics and and political science students at universities, which is. You know, the Conservative Party, I can tell you, and even today, even after the campaign and, and everything that happened, if you ask Canadians today, um, do you think people should have to show their face and, and remove their veil in order to get their driver's license, to take the oath of citizenship, to board an airplane, to get your passport? Do you think you should have to take your veil off? And people will say, like, literally by three quarters, people say, well, yes. And I think what happened in the campaign in the Conservative Party was people in the campaign said, oh, my God, we've got an issue here. And Justin Trudeau has come up clearly and said that he doesn't believe that that's, a, that's a, an important thing. And, you know, he says that there's no the government has no business telling women how to dress. And conservatives are saying, you know, we're, we're clearly in line with the vast majority of public opinion, particularly in the province of Quebec. We've got an issue here. And then you run a campaign saying you know, 1-800-CULTURAL-BARBARIC PRACTICES, you have to show your face, you have to show your face, and you get really aggressive about this issue. And I think a lot of people, the two-thirds, three-quarters of Canadians who support the, the principle that you have to show your face, sort of pump the brakes and they say, whoa, 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 don't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, but I see what you're doing here, and, and I'm with you substantively, but I see what you're trying to do here, and I'm not comfortable with that. That is not cool. Like you should show your face, yeah, but but the way in which you're using this issue and the way you're pretending, like, that's not what I meant when I said that, and I really don't like you doing that politically, and that will and that doesn't show up in polls, right? No, that no. doesn't sh- that doesn't show up in focus group necessarily, right? So, so it's, and that's sort of the art of politics that you 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 only get in retrospect that you again try to learn from understand and appreciate and carry that forward as you develop your platform and your messaging. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask, what do you, what do you think that lesson is? Um, I, I think that it, it's a bigger lesson, um, less about the issues in this context than I think it is about the in- instincts of Canadians. Mm-hmm. You know, Canadians, we are a diverse population. Um, we are, we, we know historically that national unity which is to also say not just a sort of a battle between Ottawa and the provinces, but it also means social cohesion. It means neighbor to neighbor. It means community to community that we need to be respectful and be careful about this stuff. You know, we, you, we see, in, we see sometimes in 
in schoolyards where kids of you know Korean descent and kids of European descent and are sort of their friends and cliques and and we see divisions and we try to break those things down with our kids because we know that that's not healthy and we, it's like we, we're, I think we have an instinct to try to not to, to be mindful of divisions in society, overcome them and draw people together. Um, because you think about the sweep of Canadian history, a lot of our history has been defi- defined by cleavages, English and French, Protestant, Catholic, uh, Indigenous and non, Northerner, Southerner, rural, urban, like these divides in Canadian society, which we have against all odds, by the way, in a very, I think, impressive way through 151 years of history, we've been able to overcome and build this great, remarkable country and society. But it has its challenges. And I think so I think the instinct and the lesson I think from it is that Canadians are smarter than politicians think they are. Canadians understand when something is toxic and Canadians might agree with your political party, but they but they recognize the long term damage of the divisiveness of certain tactics Hmm. going going and frankly, taking that lesson into American politics. And this is why I often say to some of my friends in the U.S., you know, who, who are fans of Donald Trump is I just say, you know, Donald Trump might win a tax cut or he might win some regulatory reform or do whatever. But, you know, all that stuff can get undone by the next next president if you don't have public support for it. And worse, when the cleavages and the gaps in society are exacerbated by a president who says there are good people on both sides of a Nazi and an anti-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, uh, that stuff doesn't get forget, forgotten by those communities who have been a target of that kind of rhetoric and that kind of ugliness. Yeah. And so, so that long-term, like politicians come and go, governments come and go. The question is, have you left the country better off? Have you left the country more united, particularly in the Canadian context? Uh, and is the country healthier, uh, broadly speaking? And that will be the true legacy of a, of a, of a president, a prime minister, and a, and a, and a government. I, I'm, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the interview that David Letterman did with uh, Jay-Z, uh, but, but uh, you know, Jay-Z was pretty clear. He thought that this is Donald Trump's actually been good in a certain way, and that he's he's awakened the politics of America in a way that very few could. And he thinks that the next election will be very telling about the degree to which Americans want to re-involve themselves, uh, re-engage with the political sphere. Well, I think that's right. There are two good. There, broadly speaking, historically, there will be two. I think good things coming out of the Donald Trump presidency, like aside from the you know, some of the policies that he might put in place that might do some good. But I think macro, Donald Trump will, I think, prove that the American system of government, its institutions, its documents, its principles, the rule of law is bigger than any person. Hmm. And when you read when you read the Federalist Papers, when you read what James Madison and particularly in Federalist Five and what what they said in American politics about the importance of recognizing that that people of good intent and intelligence and character will not always be at the helm. And, and I think Donald Trump will come and Donald Trump will go, whether it's one term, two terms, but he will, and America will still be standing and it'll still be strong and it'll still be healthy. It'll have divisions and cracks. The economy might be a little bit bigger. You know, the African-American community might be more uh, disengaged or, or maybe more engaged as Jay-Z describes, but, but they're going to have new fights as a consequence of this, but they will endure. And I think, so Donald Trump, in this, in a sense, will will be a reaffirmation of the health of American democracy. But the second thing is, I also do think it's it's important that, as we said at the beginning of the interview, that those voices of anger and angst, some, sometimes the other side gets to win and govern. And 
I think the inverse, imagine the inverse, right? Where America would be today if Hillary Clinton were president. You, know, you wouldn't have, you know, some of the, well, you wouldn't have the whole Donald Trump sort of drama and this, the breaks in the past in terms of conformity and coherence and all that stuff. So that wouldn't be, however, two thirds of Americans liked Barack Obama and thought well of him, but two thirds of Americans thought America was going in the wrong direction and needed change. So what would happen in American society? Imagine if the exact opposite happened. Donald Trump wins the popular vote. Hillary Clinton wins the Electoral College. Mm. Republicans, Republicans still would have held Congress and the Senate. Well, right now you would have endless. And, and, and by the way, there was there was still the same concept of fake news and, and Russia involved in the campaign and all that. Right now, there would be endless congressional testimony over Hillary Clinton's emails and they would never get out of it. Republicans would put up an ad because they won the popular vote. They would put it up an absolute wall and Hillary Clinton would get nothing accomplished. They would be investigating constantly and probably having more congressional hearings over Bill Clinton's sexual behavior. Um, and it would be extraordinarily ugly. And those Americans who felt that their voice was finally heard as a consequence of Donald Trump getting elected would say, see, the system is rigged against us. The bloody electoral college the system is rigged against us. We can't get ahead. It's crooked Hillary, plus the emails, plus all the... So, and, and who knows how that energy might have expressed itself in American democracy, and frankly, it could have gotten violent. Yeah, right? but, isn't, but isn't this just like almost a ridiculous stress test on the system? Um, yeah, maybe. Um, it depends on who you are and, and sort of what, where, your, where your compass points, uh, I suppose. But, but look, but America is... You know, I, I spend a lot of time in the United States. You know, you do as well. People are going about their daily lives, right? Like the president, he's doing what he's doing. I, I think the world, I think Americans learned a long time ago, but I think the world is learning and Canada is as well, for sure, is learning to don't respond, don't react to Donald Trump, respond. There's a difference, right? Um, you know, on any given day, he picks up his phone and he, and he says something really outrageous or belligerent on Twitter, or he says some throwaway comment that is actually really consequential and stupid, or he threatens a trade war or a tariff or or attacks transgendered Americans and says that they can't be patriots and fight in the military or whatever it is. But you, you just kind of have to unfortunately take it for now and let this, let, let him say what he's going to say. It's what he does that, that is, that, that needs to be sort of yeah. challenged and reconciled. There's, there's for sure damage from belligerent rhetoric. Those things matter in the long term for sure. But in the, in the, in the meantime, society continues to roll forward. Yeah. Let, let's talk a bit about one of those areas where, you, you know, there's a public facing rhetoric and then there's obviously a lot of things that have to happen in behind the scenes. And that's that's the trade discussion going on. And you're part of a, a group that's advising the Canadian side and all of this. How do you think the American side has evolved since that first round of NAFTA talks? Well, since the first round, I think there was a there was a real um, watershed moment, uh, which was when President Trump decided to invoke the steel and aluminum tariffs. Up until then, in the first five, six or seven rounds of negotiations of NAFTA 2.0, um, so the business community had been making noise, and people who, who are supporters of NAFTA had been making noise. But it wasn't until the president actually said, and it was leaked, that within 48 hours he's going to impose steel and aluminum tariffs that real people really picked up the phone and got in the president's face and said, you're out of your bloody mind. Mm. You don't understand. Like steel jobs are one thing, but there's 10 times the number of people who work with steel, who work in, in manufacturing steel, who will lose their jobs as a consequence of the, the rising tariffs and, and the supply uh, 
problem that you're going to create as a result of this. And, and I think there was a real learning moment in American politics that you do can flex muscle. The president does have limited powers. He can be confronted. And I think people in his administration, whether it was his chief of staff, Kelly, uh, or voices in the, in, in broadcast journalism on, on like people like Lawrence Kudlow, who have now been brought into the administration and others who really just said, you know, across the board, this is really dumb. And then as a consequence, there was a standing down of the tariffs and, and the carve outs for Canada, Mexico, Great Britain, Australia, and others. By, by the way, so, what, what is it about Canadians that make us feel like we caught a break in this? Um, I think we did, you know, mm-hmm. because, because on the one hand, you know, the, the, the rhetoric was so over the top. And this is, the, this is kind of the dissociative game is that, you know, the, the rhetoric was so over the top that you you, you kind of have to take Donald Trump seriously, right? You, you, you're, you're, you're forced to. He's the president of the United States. So, I mean, we did catch a break in the sense that we're not being hit by the tariffs in the way that China is is now hit with and is now countervailing, and we've got a dispute going on there. Um, but we, we did catch a break, and, and maybe in some ways it, it, it then spurred the conversation to get to a final uh, landing pad on NAFTA 2.0. So, in, in, in a backwards way that is by no way sort of the master negotiating strategy, in a backwards way, I think we may have arrived at peace because I think Americans through this process, as, they, as they've now picked more and more fights on the trade side with other countries in the world, I, I think they've come to a realization that, you know, if you, if you can't get along with Canada, who can you get along with? Right. And, yeah. and people, people in the rest of the world just think, you know, we might enter into a trading negotiation with you, but give me a break. If you can't get along with Canada, who are you going to get along with? You aren't going to get along with us. We've got all kinds of domestic issues and, and grievances. So, so I think they want to land NAFTA 2.0 now, uh, all, always subject to change because the president does change his mind based on bizarre um, processes of, of policy development. Um, but as of right now, I think they've actually landed back into a very sober, realistic spot, which is get along with Canada, show that the relationship works, show that you can modify NAFTA, improve it, move on, and then use that as an example for other countries in the world. How do you think our prime minister has dealt with Donald Trump? How would you assess him? Um, generally speaking, I think well. And, and, I, and, I, and I think, you know, Don, Justin Trudeau gets lots of criticisms from uh, on, on a lot of things about his government. But I think this is one where he's, he's managed to do well. And, and I think it's because he surrounded himself with uh, people who get it. Um, Ambassador McNaughton in Washington, D.C. is a pro and he's smart and he's very effective. I think Christopher, Christia Freeland has done very well on, on this relationship. And, 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 the, and, and I, actually, I think that's the one, the biggest piece of, of, uh, of credit that I think the government deserves and, and applause is this. Every single liberal member of parliament, activist, senator, know-it-all on the panels, all these people, every single one of them has every ideological instinct, has every political benefit, has every motive and, and appetite to want to launch in and attack Donald Trump. You'll remember back when George W. Bush was president, Carolyn, uh, a woman named Carolyn Parrish, who was a liberal MP from yeah. Mississauga. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Mm. She grabbed the George, for those who don't know, she grabbed the George W. Bush doll that was given to her, I think by this hour, his 22 minutes, she threw it on the ground in the foyer of the House of Commons and she stepped on it and she said, God damn Americans, I hate those bastards. Yeah, and this yeah. was a major, major scandal. Yeah. And Jean, Prime Minister uh, Chrétien at the time, memory serves, Chrétien Martin, threw her out of the Liberal Party uh, and disavowed her and said, this is awful. So 
those things can happen very easily. And I can, and particularly with Donald Trump, you know, people don't run for office because they, because they want to keep their powder dry and not talk. People want to talk. People want to strut. People want to be self-righteous. That's part of the nature of politicians. Well, and they're, and they're being, and they're being pushed by their constituents about every five seconds to say, Hey, come on, say something about this guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly given what I said about the 2015 campaign, which is Justin Trudeau has a majority government because Jack Layton NDP voters lent their votes to Justin Trudeau to take him over the top to defeat Stephen Harper. So to hold on to those votes, you do have to sort of flash left. Yeah. And so you have, to fl- you have to flash left, and they personally have the instinct to do it. And, they've, and, this is, and this is the credit, and this is the compliment, is that they've held their fire for a year and a half. All, every single liberal member of parliament, all of them, 170, every single liberal senator, every single liberal activist, the prime minister, all of them, have held every time Donald Trump says something about, you know, transgender Americans, again, not having a place in the armed forces or says that Mexicans are rapists or says whatever. They've held their fire and not thrown the punch. And they've done it because it's country first time. This is a, and, and, and also as an extension, they've you know, created the NAFTA Council, which I'm on, Ron Ambrose, Brian Topp, former NDP leadership candidate, chief of staff to Rachel Notley in Alberta and others. Like they've broadened it out and they've brought in people particularly in the Canada-U.S. relationship, to really sort of put country first, put partisanship aside, and manage this relationship through this really unprecedented time in the uniqueness of Donald Trump. Yeah. I I have to ask you then, uh, how how is Justin Trudeau going to work that magic in order to bridge the BC-Alberta discussion right now? Well, we'll see. I mean, we're in the midst of it. Um, And this is is an area where where I think Justin Trudeau does deserve a great deal of criticism. Um, I, I think the inverse has happened on this relationship. Um, John Horgan and Andrew Weaver formed their coalition government in July or August of 2017. So they've actually been governing the province for some time now. And John Horgan, as much as I disagree with him, to his credit, he has not been unclear about what his angle is on this. Mm-hmm. He wants to say that there's a jurisdictional question. It's complete nonsense, but it's his... It's his argument. So Justin Trudeau has known this now for nine months, that that's his principal argument. Well, the government of Canada has the ability to make a Supreme Court reference, and the Supreme Court has to hear it, and they have to expedite it uh, to the front of their agenda. So in my view, what Justin Trudeau should have done back then is brought in Rachel Notley, brought in John Horgan, and said, we're going to do a Supreme Court reference, but the reference is going to be curtailed but I also think the prime minister has to not only include the jurisdiction question for British Columbia, but he has to include something with regard to the indigenous community. Because as I've said to many of my friends who are just really aggressive and they say, we've got to build a pipeline, we've got to build a pipeline. Yes, I don't disagree with that energy and that, and that reality. However, if you build it in a way that instigates a long-term protracted fight with indigenous British Columbians, you might get your expanded Kinder Morgan pipeline but you're going to have a freeze on pretty much everything else for a long time. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to be mindful of that, right? So, so while there's an Alberta question, there is an Indigenous question. So in my view, what Justin Trudeau should have done six months ago, brought in Notley, brought in John Horgan, and said, look, we're going to do a Supreme Court reference. We're going to make sure that we, we stand firm that it, in the constitutional order. You, you both will be able to make a representation in this process. We're going to ask the Supreme Court to do this within six months, which they should be able to do. And then we'll have our answer. In the meantime, both of you play play nice. 
Yeah. No, do, do no, you think... no, 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 prohib- no, no prohibitions on wine, no cutting off fuel to YBR, <laughs> yeah. play nice. And when the result comes down, you need to restrict it. Do you think it's just that the federal government worries that maybe it doesn't have the full right here? No, I, th- I think I think they are clear. But like, you know, there's a saying in boxing and, you know, mixed martial arts and all this, never leave it in the hands of the of the judges, as they say, because yeah. in, in sports, because you never know how they saw the dispute. And there have been plenty of court decisions at all levels that have made people scratch their heads and think, wow, that was really not what I thought. So I suppose there's always a risk, but that's our system of government, and it is what it is. And I think sections 91 and 92 are very clear about jurisdictional authority. And I think there, there is actually a robustness to the Canadian process that can withstand this stress test. And I think it actually would be cathartic and healthy in the long term to actually have the imprimatur and the clarity from the Supreme Court of Canada on these jurisdictional questions on a go-forward basis. So I actually do think that it would have been a benefit. But now here we are at this point, at this juncture, yeah. and Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan is threatening to walk away. Now, we'll see if Kinder Morgan is actually going to walk away. Um, you know, obviously, they have an aspiration for an investment from the government of Alberta. Okay. But I also do think that they do want some jurisdictional clarity. But I also think they want to make sure that Justin Trudeau understands that it's not just Elizabeth May and Kennedy Stewart and a few activists who are going to get handcuffed. It, it, it could get very ugly along the line when they build this and expand the pipeline, right? Yeah. And so there, there could be the visualization of an Oka moment of, you know, you, you look in political science textbooks now 30 years later, and, you, you know, the soldier and the, and the Mohawk nose to nose is in every political science textbook, and it's, and it's one of those historic images of Canadian society. Justin Trudeau faces that on this. And I think Kinder Morgan wants to have clarity that he's not going to he's not going to turn into a chocolate soldier and melt in the heat on this. That he's going to stand firm and see this through. And and I, and I think they they frankly I think they're a little bit nervous that Justin Trudeau won't do that. Yeah, but do you think that Kinder Morgan would be assuaged if if, if you know as a result of their meeting, uh, the three sides, the uh, three parties basically agree that they're going to move into the court? And do you think Kinder Morgan will wait eight months, nine months I, to get that done? I think they can. And I think, look, the other thing, too, about Kinder Morgan that distinguishes this from Energy East and from the Northern Gateway Pipeline is that Kinder Morgan is already here. They're not yeah. going anywhere. Right. That they have a pipeline. It, this is a question of expanding the pipeline, not building a new one. So they, they have a pipeline. So they're not going anywhere. So Kinder Morgan has a relationship with British Columbians, with Aboriginal communities, with Canadians. On a, they have had one for 60 years, and it's going to continue. So, so this, it's, it's, it's different in that sense as well. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, get a bit of a gauge from you before we're done on, uh, as a former heritage minister, about the changes at the top of the CBC in the last couple of weeks. New president, new chair of the board. Uh, What direction do you think this signals from the Trudeau government about the role of the public broadcaster? I've only heard good things about uh, about Ms. Tate and and her her capacities, and I I think it's impressive. I I think it's I think it was unfortunate in some of the sort of the benign, you know, 150 word stories that just sort of said, oh, by the way, she's the first female CEO. I think that I think that betrays the quality of her candidacy. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 I also think, you know, and, and our government didn't do this. You know, I I, I don't mind t- telling this story. When I was heritage minister, after we won our majority government in 2011, I went to Stephen Harper and I said, do you. You know, we, we finally have a majority government now. What do you want to do with the CBC, our largest and most public uh, of institutions? Um, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to just leave it as it is? 
do you want to cut them 10% as everybody else is being cut because we all have to we have to rationalize this the, the consequences of the recession um, or, or frankly prime minister what i would like to do is i would like to have um, a real serious conversation for the first time in a, gener- in a generation about the future of the public broadcaster I'd, lo- I'd like to do a royal commission or something like that, and I would like to put a few options on the table. We can ask. We have to ask Canadians: Do you believe in a public broadcaster? Yes or no. If you do, what should it look like, and how much are you prepared to pay for it? And we haven't had that conversation in a generation. And I, I was hoping to do that. Our government decided we had more than enough fires and more than enough things to deal with that it was too much. But I made the argument that we have a four-year majority mandate. We can do this in the first 18 months. We could absorb the blowback in the, in the subsequent six to 12 months and implement some changes and then still have plenty of time to absorb those changes and go into the 2015 campaign. But it was, it was the view of the government that we shouldn't do that. So I think the Liberals have missed an opportunity themselves, like we did, yeah. by g- giving a bunch more money to the CBC changing the leadership and saying, well, there we go. Now we're fine. Well, you know, the CBC's television numbers are still on the floor. Um, Their radio numbers are good, but that's only because fewer people, they have a massive share of a shrinking number of people who listen to radio. Okay. Their digital presence is strong. Okay. Um, But it, it's, it's still, I think not nearly what it could be, or I think what, what it should be for a country of our size and diversity. What seems to be happening is, is that, uh, is that Netflix, um, and, and some of the other streaming services are beginning to occupy the programming ground that used to be in this country, the preserve of the CBC, even the private sector was really not a much of a, a runner in this field until about 15 years ago. It, it is getting itself back to high-quality programming, the way that CBC uh, reinstitutes its relevance? Yes, but but look, I I think they should be out of professional sports. I think they should be Mm -hmm. ad-free. I think now that the Liberals have given them this extra money, I think they can be Um, ad-free. And and I think they should have a a focused mandate. Um, You know, there's, as we all know, there's there's a collapse of the economic model for the collection and dissemination of news in all regions of Canada, certainly over broadcast and radio, television, digital, and doing it in both official languages and eight Aboriginal languages. That's a massive mandate that's being asked of the CBC in a, in a time of the evaporation of ad revenue mm-hmm. uh, and the challenging of the business model. So, so we've asked the CBC a lot. Um, and, and I just think, you know, we, we, we do need to recalibrate Canadian broadcast policy in general. I think we should have, and this is what I would advise in a Royal Commission, is I think we should have a conversation about a new Broadcast Act, a new CRTC Act, and a CBC Act, and have a conversation about what do we want these three things, because they all are interconnected. What do we want the Broadcast Act to look like? What do we want the CRTC to look like? What do we want the CBC to look like? And how do they integrate? I think we're way past due to have this conversation. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we missed our moment and, you know, I was prepared to do it, but, but it, there were, everything is context and timing and we, we weren't there. The liberals could have done it, but they've missed their window in this government to, at least to this mandate to do it. Um, but I think we're way overdue. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, but I, I think, and I think a lot of people just sort of shrug and they say, well, just keep giving them money. They'll just sort of stumble along and they'll have some creative destruction and then we'll see where they end up. And, you know, they, they do they do a lot of good, but they do a lot of annoying things. And, you know, they're just kind of a nuisance. And I, and I just think that's a pretty dispiriting um, uh, sort of forward path for the, for the corporation. Yeah, I, th- I think not many Canadians apprehended uh, your own 
position about the CBC when you were the minister. I think you spoke about it. You were out there in front. You would appear on CBC. You would talk it up. Uh, but that, um, that that seemed to get subsumed in the, the stereotype that is there about conservative governments, even though liberal governments have frankly been the bigger cutters over the CBC's history. Do you think that mm-hmm. had, had you been able to get that royal commission or get that conversation going, that it might have um, might have influenced uh, Canadians in such a way that they would have had a very different perception about the Conservative Party? Well, maybe, but at the time, so and, and we were mindful of this, like everything is context. And But at the time, so 2011, Sun TV was still on the air. Rebel right. Media hadn't been born yet, but basically the same same voices who were saying, you've got to destroy the CBC, the government, evil government broadcaster. And they had... They had a weight of, and, and there still are a lot of Canadians who think that their CBC should just disappear. And then the other side, you have friends of the CBC and some of, frankly, of the of the unions who are interested in, in a very provincial, parochial interests um, related to money. And, and, you know, are you giving the CBC more money or less money? That's the benchmark of quality. It's the benchmark of respect. It's the benchmark of believing in the broadcaster. Well, all of that's nonsense. Like, mm. you know, I, I believe in a public broadcaster. I believe in the importance of this. We're the second largest country in the world in size, 37th largest in population. We have historically lots of divisions. The way in which we stay united as a country is we tell each other stories. We empathize with each other. When there's a flood in the Saguenay River in Quebec, the people of Moose Jaw and Prince George know about it. When there's a horrific bus crash in, in Humboldt and in, in, in northern Saskatchewan, everybody in the country should know about it and have some empathy and sympathy. And, and these moments of triumph and tragedy should all be known and shared and understood across the country. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that in both official languages and eight Aboriginal languages in the free market. It's, you just can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think the institution is really important for the country. And unfortunately, like a lot of debates, it's the 5% on the extremes that go at it like a crow and a badger, and they absorb the spotlight, and reasonable people can't just sit down and talk and actually come to a rational conclusion about things and have a conversation. But I think that's the virtue of a royal commission is that it's longer term, and you let people blow off their steam in the first few weeks of the announcement of the royal commission, and then you just sort of talk about it, and let's have a conversation. And frankly, at, at the end of a royal commission, maybe you do or you don't implement implement the the recommendations. But at least we've had a conversation about it. Yeah. And I think right now, liberals are afraid of the conversation because the NDP was because the hard left answer is just give them more money, give them more power. And the hard right will say, get rid of them; they're unnecessary. It's the digital age. We have all we have Netflix. They're completely they're a dinosaur in the modern era. And then sort of the middle ground just evaporates and we get lost. And, and they just say it's not the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's just way too much problem. Well, OK. And, so, and, and, yeah. then, and, then, and then we're in paralysis. Yeah. Listen, before we let you go, uh, I mean, everybody hears the passion in your voice at all times about uh, about public policy. And, and so uh, so I'll ask a question. Probably you get asked uh, five times a week. I, I can't believe that that you're not going to somehow return to public office. Do you feel like you miss it? I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what, maybe it's just my way of speaking or whatever, but like I, I, I have an energy in it about public policy and it started, you know, as a young, you know, activist and all that. But, but I think there are ways to be effective um, and, and ways to engage in the debate and whether it's through my work at Denton's or Edelman or other things that I'm doing or being involved with the NAFTA council or frankly coming on your show and having these kinds of conversations, I, I frankly, I get to scratch that itch, but for members of parliament from British Columbia 
it's typically two or three terms. I served five terms. It was 15 years, uh, 10 years in government, eight years in cabinet. And I had a really, really um, great run that I'm extraordinarily privileged and lucky to have had. And I, I don't, you know, have a real aspiration to come back into public life. You know, it's a, it, it's tough, right? And flying, being on a plane every three days for 15 years to and from Ottawa, being time away from the family and, you know, um, I think and I hope that there are more ways to be sort of helpful to the health of society and my family and life than just running for office. And and that's what I aspire to. So are you, are you going to be the first former politician I've ever heard the word never from? <laughs> uh, no, I, could not, I would say never say never. So, okay. you know, <laughs> no, come I, I on, you. are you? Yeah. Uh. No, but 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 I really I, I just got out. Like I, I, I fifteen years in, I I sincerely have no aspiration to go back into politics. I I think I really I really don't. Um, uh. I'm very much enjoying the private sector. I'm enjoying the work I'm doing at Denton's and Edelman and elsewhere. Um, a broad diversity of things, and I I, I don't. I don't have any need or com- compulsion to go back in. The, the, actually, the way I describe it is this: my analogy is you ever go on a really long hike and you get three quarters of the way through a hike, and I look at you and I say, "Kirk, isn't this an amazing hike? Look how beautiful it is. Look at the look at the lions. Look at the view. Isn't this gorgeous? Isn't this amazing?" And you say, "Yeah, it's really great." This is, are you glad you came? You say, "Yeah, it was really fantastic." You say, "Awesome." Do, do you want to go back to the beginning and start all over? You'd say. No, I'm good. I'm good. I, I sort of feel like that about politics. Like I, okay. I, I ran, I ran five times, and I'm very, very, very privileged to have been given the trust that I was given. Well, it's been a great conversation. I could spend so much more time with you, James. But it, it's uh, it's always delightful to have you uh, in conversation. I want to thank you for your time today. The pleasure is mine, and and uh, love to do it again. James Moore, Conservative MP for 15 years, former Heritage Minister, former Industry Minister, now of course extremely active Chancellor at UNBC. Senior Business Advisor at Denton's, Policy Advisor at Edelman, on the board of the Canadian Cancer Society. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you next time.